The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin. Knowing that Mrs. Mallard was afflicted with a heart trouble, great care was taken to break to her as gently as possible the news of her husband's death. It was her sister Josephine who told her, in broken sentences, veiled hints that revealed in half-concealing. Her husband's friend Richards was there too, near her. It was he who had been in the newspaper office when intelligence of the railroad disaster was received, with Brentley Mallard's name leading the list of killed. He had only taken the time to assure himself of its truth by a second telegram, and had hastened to forestall any less careful, less tender friend in bearing the sad message. She did not hear the story as many women have heard the same, with a paralyzed inability to accept its significance. She wept at once, with sudden wild abandonment in her sister's arms. When the storm of grief had spent itself, she went away to her room, alone. She would have no one follow her. There stood, facing the open window, a comfortable, roomy armchair. Into this she sank, pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach into her soul. She could see in the open square before her house the tops of trees that were all aquiver with the new spring life. The delicious breath of rain was in the air. In the street below, a peddler was crying his wares. The notes of a distant song which someone was singing reached her faintly, and countless sparrows were twittering in the eaves. There were patches of blue sky showing here and there through the clouds that had met and piled one above the other in the west, facing her window. She sat with her head thrown back upon the cushion of the chair, quite motionless, except when a sob came into her throat and shook her, as a child who has cried itself to sleep continues to sob in its dreams. She was young, with a fair, calm face, whose lines bespoke repression and even a certain strength. But now there was a dull stare in her eyes, whose gaze was fixed away off yonder on one of those patches of blue sky. It was not a glance of reflection, but rather indicated a suspension of intelligent thought. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. What was it? She didn't know. It was too subtle and elusive to name, but she felt it, creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white, slender hands would have been. When she abandoned herself, a little whispered word escaped her slightly parted lips. She said it over and over under her breath, Free, free, free. The vacant stare and the look of terror that had followed it went from her eyes. 
They stayed keen and bright. Her pulses beat fast, and the coursing blood warmed and relaxed every inch of her body. She did not stop to ask if it were or were not a monstrous joy that held her. A clear and exalted perception enabled her to dismiss the suggestion as trivial. She knew that she would weep again when she saw the kind, tender hands folded in death, the face that had never looked save with love upon her, fixed and gray and dead. But she saw beyond that bitter moment a long procession of years to come that would belong to her absolutely. And she opened and spread her arms out to them in welcome. There would be no one to live for her during those coming years. She would live for herself. There would be no powerful will bending hers into that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have a right to impose a private will upon a fellow creature. A kind intention or a cruel intention made the act seem no less a crime as she looked upon it in that brief moment of illumination. And yet, she had loved him. Sometimes, often, she had not. What did it matter? What could love, the unsolved mystery, count for in face of this possession of self-assertion which she suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her being? Free. Body and soul, free, she kept whispering. Josephine was kneeling before the closed door with her lips to the keyhole, imploring for admission. Louise, open the door. I beg, open the door. You'll make yourself ill. What are you doing, Louise? For heaven's sake, open the door. Go away. I'm not making myself ill. No, she was drinking in a very elixir of life through that open window. Her fancy was running riot along those days ahead of her. Spring days and summer days, and all sorts of days that would be her own. She breathed a quick prayer that life might be long. It was only yesterday she had thought with a shudder that life might be long. She arose at length and opened the door to her sister's importunities. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes, and she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. She clasped her sister's waist, and together they descended the stairs. Richards stood waiting for them at the bottom. Someone was opening the front door with a latch key. It was Brentley Mallard who entered. A little travel-stained, composedly carrying his gripsack and umbrella, he had been far from the scene of the accident and did not even know there had been one. He stood amazed at Josephine's piercing cry, at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. But Richard's was too late. When the doctors came, they said she had died of heart disease, of the joy that kills. The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin. Notice how I, I looked up how to pronounce um, Kate Chopin. On the internet, Kate Chopin. So um, don't blame me. That's what the internet says, and the internet's never wrong. But wasn't that a great story? 
I think these days we'd call that flash fiction, the story of an hour. All the things that happen in an hour, really beautifully done. How just, you know, the key motive is, there are many, there are about three or four, but certainly one of them is um, how perspective changes everything. How our life is completely transformed by seeing things from different perspectives. Uh, This is uh, true both for the heroine whose life is changed, Louise Mallard, by looking at things from a different point of view, but for us as well, because there are many twists in this story. So we, we see one thing, we think it's this, and then twist, and then it's something else, twist, and then it's something else. Okay, so it's very good. The first shock that sets us for him up for emotions is a fairly standard one. Mr. Husband Bentley Mallard, great name, is dead. And his young wife, Louise, who has a heart condition, is now a widow. So that's the first, oh no. And that's a fairly standard opening and it it leads us with certain cultural expectations. We believe that the young wife in most stories would be heartbroken. Mm. You know, very, very upset. Things have unexpectedly suddenly changed. So it's a standard thing. We're led to have standard expectations that she will be bereft. Nice bit of foreshadowing here. We're told at the very beginning she has a heart condition. We may then forget that until the end. Okay, first time we read it. So the young widow goes and locks herself in a room and we assume it's out of grief. And certainly this is what her sister and Mr. Richard seem to believe. They, and they want to protect her because, again, she can't have a sudden shock because of her heart. So it's a, a setup. So far, so good. And we go along so far and we twist. Kate Chopin twists it. So three minutes, just before three minutes into the story, there she is crying, crying herself into silence with her sobs. And there's a great unknown fear. She doesn't know what it is. And in those days, you know, women were expected to be completely powerless. And if the man in their life died, that could throw them on the scrap heap. They wouldn't have any money. They, they would really suffer. So that's what we expect. Now we get the inkling, I'm just being, um, this was published in 1894, The Story of an Hour, and I've just been reading Dracula, um, still am, published in 1897, and in one of the chapters of Dracula, Bram Stoker goes on about these new women who have their modern ideas, and he doesn't totally approve of them, but I guess what we're seeing here in this story is one of those new women with her modern ideas, in that she uh, does not subsume herself to her husband, neither Louise Mallard nor Kate Chopin. Um, three minutes 52, she realizes she's free. And that's what she was frightened of. She had this intuition of fear. Something was coming. And what she was frightened of was her fear. So that the ambivalence is really good as well here. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm free, thank God. Not unsubtle like that, but it's, it's mixed. She becomes joyous with it, but it's, a, it's not an unalloyed joy. I like saying that, unalloyed. An alloyed? An alloyed, probably. Never mind. Three minutes, 52. She's free. Hooray. She's free. And the other subtle thing is this. She's free of the man who loved her, but whose love, as for most women of her class and position, actually enslaved her. By four minutes and two seconds, she's reconciled herself and is no longer scared of her freedom because she was a bit. So the twist then is that she, the first twist is that she is not heartbroken to be a widow, but joyful. The subtlety again comes out in that if Bentley Mallard had been portrayed as a beast, a monster, a drinker, a woman beater, that would have been a very coarse way of doing it. But he's actually portrayed as a bit of a saint. He adores the woman. 
And even when he comes back, he's, he's gently bemused. You know, he's a, he's a mild man, it seems. Almost without faults, he's, a, he's a, almost a saint. Well, maybe not go that far, but he's certainly an, a decent bloke. And that is the subtlety here that even decent blokes, I think she's trying to say, can enslave their wives, do enslave their wives, probably. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying this is where she seems to be coming from. And, you know, many feminists would agree with her. So the subtlety is that he isn't a pig because that would be too coarse. And this is not a coarse story. And I was rooting for her. So another great thing that Kate Chopin pulls off is that we are rooting for this woman. We're told she's joyful that her husband's dead. We're told that she did, he loved her, he adored her, but she didn't really care that much about him. So in another storyteller's hands, this would make her into a bit of a monster. We wouldn't really like her at all. But we managed to not, you know, sometimes you can have like, a, you know, I think a Dexter or a Hannibal Lecter. You can have a, a monster who we kind of root for. But she isn't a monster. She has these flaws. Are they flaws? Yeah, probably we would consider them flaws. Uh, certainly flaws of sympathy. And uh, yet we still root for her. So that's a great ability in a writer to be able to do that. So there at six minutes and 54 seconds into the story, by my reading, Louise Mallard carries herself as a goddess of victory. And then at seven minutes and four seconds, someone is opening the front door. And this is what they call prolepsis. It's a rhetorical device. Someone is opening the door. So basically what we do is we introduce a person, but we, we keep them in shadow. We don't give them a name. We give them just a pronoun, someone. And this creates what we might call an open loop. It raises a question and it creates tension in us as human beings, creates suspense. We're told that he's opening with a latch key. So that piece of information tells us that he's a, he's a trusted, valued member of the household. And we're already getting an inkling. Who, did we get an inkling? Did I get an inkling at this point? It was dawning on me. It only took seconds for this, to be, this information to come through. So in those seconds, I'm going, oh, no. So at seven minutes and eight seconds, Brentley Mallard is named unexpectedly alive. And this is another twist. Boom, another twist. Okay. And we imagine the scene. The scene is so sparingly but beautifully painted. Here's Brentley come with his grip bag and he hasn't got a clue what's going on. And he's a nice enough fellow. And he looks around and there's his friend Richards. And there's his sister-in-law and there's his wife on the stairs. And they're all carrying on shrieking. His friends tries to push him out of the way or to shield him from his wife. And he must be thinking, what is going on here, right? Because he doesn't, hasn't even heard about the accident. And then and another deft thing that uh, Kate Chopin does is that Richards shields Louise from Brentley because he knows that Louise is at risk of having a heart attack. And we've, I'd forgotten this at this point. And, and, and just, and, I'm, and I might, you know, if my brain was going that slowly, I would go, what's Richards doing this? Oh, yeah. And then bang. So at seven minutes and 33 seconds, Louise Mallard is dead. At seven minutes and 42 seconds, the whole thing's wrapped up. What, an, what a um, great achievement. Yeah, what a brilliant story. Really enjoyed it. I normally do classic ghost stories. But I thought I'd just do a classic short story instead. Not even a ghost. I mean, I, technically, you could say, she dies, so um, it could be that she was lingering there as a ghost, but we can't honestly claim this is a ghost story. I hope you liked it. I did. Nice and short. Anyway, it's brilliant. Good. I like a story with a twist. I might do some O. Henry as well. He was very good at twisting stories. Okay. Speak to you soon. <laughs>